Hi everyone, my name is Monica Kretschmer and I'm the founder and CEO of the Universal Women's Network and Woman of Inspiration. And this is the Woman of Inspiration podcast where we are interviewing women, making an impact locally, nationally, and globally. Now, these are the women that are blazing the trails, ignoring the naysayers, and inspiring those around them to take action and live their dreams big. So today with me, I'm super excited to interview our guest of the um, of, for this episode. And it's a special episode because right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. So um, what better uh, person to interview than is one of the uh, most sought after people right now um, in, in, in the world. I mean, honestly, Suzanne, I'm, I'm grateful that you actually had the time to, to spend and carve out the space to speak with us today. Suzanne Donovan, um, you are the UCLA professor of medicine and infectious diseases expert um, in outbreak management and infectious prevention and control. That is a massive title, Suzanne. What does that really mean? Like what, that's a big role and a big responsibility, especially right now in the current situation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show today, Monica. Um, yeah, well, what I do is, is you know, I think we all know what an outbreak is because we're in one right now. And a pandemic is just an epidemic that is in multiple continents. And our last pandemic uh, that I experienced was the H1N1 back in 2009. When we talk about infection control, and infection prevention and control, that's managing outbreaks within a facility. So usually a hospital, but it could be a nursing home. And that's critical to keep both patients and healthcare workers safe. And in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, infection control is, is the foundation of making sure that our healthcare workers are safe as they care for both the COVID suspects and confirmed cases. So, you know, we were talking in the green room before we got on the call today and we were like, okay, how's the lighting? You know, all the usual stuff that people that do podcasts were like, let's have a little bit of background talk. Yeah. Um, and I was chatting with you and I said, you know, I, I know that you're really, really busy right now. Um, you've taken how many calls and conference calls of the past couple days? Yes. Well, it's always a busy time when there's an epidemic and uh, we started preparing back in January when it was confined really to China. And I have talked to many people that I, I thought that, you know, we would have a very limited transmission initially in the United States and in North America because uh, the CDC is really one of the leaders in public health, not only just in the U.S., but worldwide. Uh, every outbreak, uh, whether it's Ebola or COVID, the CDC is usually one of the first agencies to be called. They are at the front lines, both with epidemiology, implementing interventions in place to prevent transmission, lab testing, really state-of-the-art. And unfortunately, that did not happen with this pandemic. And I think we're all a little bit shocked that um, we didn't have what we needed in place and we're unfortunately going to have, you know, significant community transmission. 
So let me ask you, um, you said that, you know, the preparation started up in January. Um, the media really didn't get, really build it up, start building it up to probably about starting even just after the Super Bowl, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I think about all these large scale gatherings that are no longer happening. Yeah. And do you think that action prior to those bigger gatherings might have even helped a little bit? That's a great question. I, I think the number one action when you talk about an epidemic, um, which would be limited to, to one area, is that you want to implement containment measures. So containment measures would be very early case finding. And then contact tracing, when you follow up on every single contact. We did that during, I worked on the, the Ebola outbreak in 2014 and 15. And uh, that wasn't done also um, because of limited resources with the WHO. And so it did spread throughout West Africa. But early containment is very basic epidemiology. You, you basically make your case of definition. Who do we, who's a suspect? You implement rapid testing so that you get a diagnosis very quickly. And then you follow up every single contact. That that initial component did not happen in this country. When you compare our testing efforts with South Korea or Italy, um, they are way ahead of us in the surveillance or what we call case finding. And there's a lot of different reasons why that happened. I mean, number one, public health has not been adequately funded. Um, also, the U.S. decided to develop their own test and not use a test that was developed by the, used by the WHO. And so by the time it hit the shores of the United States, we were already six weeks behind. That's time we will never make up. And so we know there's transmission in the U.S., especially in areas like New York and Washington and California. But we still have inadequate screening. If we have inadequate screening, that means that we have individuals out there that are infected that we don't know about and their contacts are being infected. The good news is many people who do get COVID-19 have mild disease, but if we don't identify them, we can't prevent exposure to the people that are at very high risk. And those would be people that are older that have what we call comorbidities or other medical conditions and even younger individuals um, who have medical problems or just appear to to get more aggressive disease are at risk. So that, unfortunately, we missed that opportunity here. Um, So now when you talk about, you know, canceling large events, that's what we call, that's almost like a remediation. So that's when you're into an epidemic or a pandemic You've, you, you still are continuing containment. We're still trying to identify high-risk uh, suspects, like for example, someone that might be in a nursing home or a congregate setting, healthcare workers. But now we need to start social distancing. And social distancing means you already have community transmission. You have to really avoid large gatherings, shut down schools, shut down um, other gatherings like conferences. So we've had conferences in the United States where people attended, even recently, where there was a a lot of secondary transmission. And that really could be avoided by all of us accepting, you know, just stay the fuck home. (laughs) 
that's really, if you can, you need to stay home. You need to minimize going to parties. You need to really look at everything you're doing and say, is this really necessary? And I get a lot of response. I'm going to be fine because, you know, I know that most individuals that get very sick are the more frail, but you're doing it for those individuals and you're doing it to minimize community transmission. We're not going to stop community transmission. That horse is out of the barn. It's here. It's here in Los Angeles. It's here in the United States. It's in Canada. Um, but what we can do is change the curve, you know, that curve going up. Um, and all of us have to do it. So if you're thinking that the CDC is going to do that or the local public health department, that's not going to happen. You know, public health is everyone's responsibility. And what's really interesting about the United States is it has a very decentralized public health. So in China, which um, that country really had a significant delay in their ability to, to contain um, their outbreak, which you know obviously led to spread to other continents, but they have a very centralized public health. If they want to shut down a city, they shut down a city, even if the public health department is thousands of miles away. For whatever reason, in the United States, uh, you know, Americans kind of like to do their own thing. And so even we have the CDC, um, the CDC issues recommendations, but they don't have power to issue mandatory actions um, to a lot of areas. And so they will have recommendations, please avoid social distancing. Instead, in some countries like Italy, shut down all the schools, just shut them down. Um, and it's both a great thing about the U.S. that we have that flexibility to react locally, but it's also a limitation that we allow a lot of areas to make decisions that may not be data driven. So let me ask you something, and this is just when I when I think about you know those really shut everything down for like a period of what 14 days you know um i wouldn't recommend 14 days so 14 days is uh the incubation period uh you know most individuals after exposure will get sick within four to five days mm. however we do know that there's individuals up to 12 days 14 days and some real stragglers that may go even further than that so you really want to go beyond 14 days because that's really one almost transition cycle. And what I usually use is two incubation periods. So I would say we're looking at at least 30 days of, and then re-examining the data. Two weeks is way too early to really know what's going on. We'll have an idea how, how much the cases will increase. But from a public health perspective, my recommendations to agencies, if they're gonna close, is that they're really looking at a 30 day period with a reassessment, you know, close to the end of that 30 days. So in with your sort of insight, is that something that's inevitable or on the table right now? Like, are we close to that happening? Oh, we've already shut down. All of our um, public schools in Los Angeles are shutting down. Major universities shut down in the last two weeks, including Harvard. University of California system, um, you know, some of the, the Cal State schools um, heart, you know, on the East Coast, many of the schools have shut down. But again, there's not a consistent um, 
decision. You know, some of the private schools shut down earlier, some have, are still going. Uh, so it's, it is a little bit, uh, makes it a little bit more challenging to have a consensus of what should be doing, um, what people should be doing, because they are getting a mixed message, right, from the public officials that we're going to keep the high schools going, but we're going to shut the universities down. What about the daycare centers? And, but these decisions are extremely difficult. So when you shut the schools down, which happened on Friday in Los Angeles, what do the healthcare workers do that have young children? So when you make a decision to shut schools down, you really have to think about what the ramifications are. What are we gonna to do to provide daycare or childcare so that we can keep our healthcare force and other critical rapid responders, the police, the fire department, the paramedics, um, the decision makers, that we can keep them working. I think if companies can't allow their workers to telecommute, they should. And I see that happening up in Canada. I've you know, I've had daily emails from organizations that have sent communications saying we're closing our offices, we're going to have everybody move, um, work remotely, um, or the ones that haven't done that yet, I've heard that they're actually testing the system and we're even doing that testing um, to see if their technology and enables everybody to work from home. So they were already doing that, um, you know, at the end of last week. So, you know, it's it's great to see that. Um, I, I also see there's, you know, people that are not coping well with it because it's, it's, you know, an uncertain time, you know, so, you know, social distancing ourselves only en enhances the ability to stop and confine it. Um, how do you, what would you recommend for those that are struggling with, you know, coping with everything that's going on. You know, I always believe in looking at the glass half full, not half empty, you know, we will get through this. Um, what are you saying to those people that, you know, might be having a rough time with, with all the change? I think it's, it's very, very challenging um, for everyone, including healthcare workers. So I agree with you. I mean, I think focusing on what we're doing and the reassurance that if you look at some of the data from South Korea where they did widespread drive-through testing, that the reported mortality rates or how many people die if they are infected is much lower than the initial pr predictions of you know four individuals out of 100. They look like they're well below 1%. Of course, I'm still very concerned about the people that are at risk and also very concerned about healthcare workers that they have the appropriate training and what we call PPEs or personal protective equipment. But what you're talking about is, you know, the citizens out in the community. And, you know, I encourage everyone to really focus on taking care of themselves, get sleep, eat well. Um, if you don't meditate, pick up meditation. Try to avoid a lot of the inflammatory media that is really, um, uh, you know, I think the role should be education as opposed to really a little bit of fear-mongering, you know. During an epidemic, um, and we experienced this with Ebola, I don't know if you remember this, at least in the United States, uh, there was such fear that I, I felt, I, you always say fear is a contagious disease, it's an infectious disease because it spreads rapidly through a community and also leads to, you know, other problems. People get sick, they don't access healthcare because they're afraid of going into a hospital. And so I think toning the volume down and focusing on the facts, but also taking care of yourself. Um, 
and looking at other things that you can do, you know, take a walk, um, exercise. I think these things are all very important. For those of us that are working in hospitals and, you know, working at the public health level, um, I do talk to my staff about how important it is. Take a break, leave the hospital, take a walk, um, and don't skip meals. And, you know, check in with yourself. Check in that you're doing okay. I um, manage outbreaks all over the world. And the one thing that I see in terms of uh, the risk of people getting infected, getting sick, um, being exposed, is when people get stressed and um, you know they make mistakes that they normally would not do. So I think that's very, very important when you're dealing with any infectious disease, particularly what we call novel pathogens, novel being new, um, and pathogen, the, the particular infection we de we're dealing with now. We know coronavirus, you know, all of us have had coronavirus, the community coronavirus, it causes cold-like symptoms. But this is the third coronavirus or a novel coronavirus that has caused, called, uh, caused an epidemic. You remember SARS, which was in Canada, uh, you know, a number of years ago, and also MERS, which was in the Middle East and continues in the Middle East. Both of those novel coronaviruses were associated with a much higher death rate than we're seeing right now with this particular strain. But because none of us have been exposed to this, there's gonna be a very, very high rate of infection globally. Um, and when you have a very high rate of infection globally, like what we see with flu, pandemic flu, even though the mortality rate, which I already said earlier, might be lower than what we thought, less than 1%, much less than 1%, it still means a lot of people are gonna die, a lot of people are gonna end up in the ICU um, or need other acute care. And the other concern that I have is when we do have global pandemics, what about everyone else who does not have COVID that needs care for their stroke, their heart attack, their chemotherapy, uh, that access to that kind of care will also be impacted. So that is your world, is managing and seeing that big picture, how it affects everything else and you know thank god there is people like you in the world that that's your specialty you dive in you're comfortable in that space you thrive in that space you know what to do and i think that's what people need to hear suzanne is that there's people like yourself who know how to respond in these situations this is not your first rodeo and i feel comfort and actually knowing that there's people like yourself at the helm that have these, that know what to do. Uh, thank you for that. I just also want to say, to reassure people, um, I've been around a lot of emerging infections. I saw one of the first cases in Los Angeles uh, personally, and I'm confident with wearing correct PPE or personal protective equipment, you know, wearing a mask, protecting your eyes, um, wearing gown and gloves, that you can provide clinical care safely. Please, for those of you listening, do not go out and buy up a bunch of masks and other supplies because you potentially will be decreasing access to healthcare workers that, that may need that. And we had that early in the outbreak. Don't go into your local clinic and and take the box of masks that you, you see in the waiting room um, because that means that people that need 
uh, those masks can't access that. That's been a, a real problem nationally that we are short on protective equipment. With equipment, though, I'm very um, confident, um, and if I wasn't, I wouldn't be taking care of patients with COVID, um, that we can protect our healthcare workers. And that's my, my primary focus, is keeping our healthcare worker, workers safe, not only just with this outbreak, but in other ones I've been involved in. So let me ask you, if you are, you know, you've seen um, and, and you've been working with patients that have the COVID, um, you know, what, how are they feeling about having this? Um, and what sort of treatments are they, you know, not every case is going to turn right. to, you know, so maybe just paint that, you right. know, you have it, is seeing signs of it. Right. Don't panic. Like, I just love to talk to you about that because that's interesting news. So the, the, the challenging thing with COVID is the symptoms are very sim similar to flu when you present. So how do you know someone has a flu versus another infection versus COVID? You know, it's fever and cough. The fever may not pop up until later in the course. So if someone presents with a fever, that, that, that also can be a little bit challenging um, because it's very similar to a lot of respiratory infections um, that we see in the emergency room, emergent care and clinics. And that's why it's so important to have access to testing. And that's been a very uh, large challenge in the United States. I would say the, to answer your question, the first response for most patients and, and their families is fear. You know, they've been watching things on TV, you know, and then they've watched things in China where everyone is in big Tyvek suits totally covered up, which is not necessary unless there's going to be massive exposure to bodily fluids, which we don't see in most patients. And it's, it's very frightening for the patient, um, especially if they end up getting admitted. And so, you know, reassurance that we're going to do everything we can. The, the treatment is really just supportive care. There are some non-approved medical therapies for COVID um, that are under scrutiny. One is remdesivir, which is available through Gilead and um, has not been approved yet, but um, in the past has been available through compassionate use. People are looking at you know, drugs we already have that also have not been approved, whether one of the HIV drugs, whether a medication that we use for malaria. So we're, everyone is sharing data. Um, certainly we have a lot of information from China. China's been doing a lot of clinical trials looking at, at different medications. But right now we do not have an approved therapy for COVID. And I think that's very important to know if people get critically ill, they will be supported on ventilation if that's what they need. Um, every hospital should be looking at the critical supplies, which includes ventilators, to make sure that they can meet the need uh, for those individuals that are highest risk for ending up needing what we, you know, needing uh, ICU level of care. Um, and I think what Italy saw was they depleted um, their, their their capacity to provide ventilators and really ICU level care. And we, we are working hard for that not to happen here in the United States, but every hospital in North America needs to assess what their needs are. They need to assess their capacity and they need to, to actually have a disaster plan um, to respond to this pandemic. So I'm gonna ask a really silly question, um, but when we, you know, we say that it's like a form of the flu, you know, when you get the flu, you go through the whole flu thing and you might be in bed for three or four days 
at the most, most times. And then you wake up one day and everything's fine. And, and it's gone through your system. Is that the same? I mean, if, if you're healthy to begin with, then you wake up and, and you're fine on the third or fourth day and you feel like a million bucks, but not two days earlier. Is, is that kind of the same thing with um, COVID or? That's, no, that's not necessarily quite a, a fantastic question. And, um, you know, you're going to see a lot of people talking on TV shows, talking about COVID. And what I always say is if you have a lot of time to go on TV shows, you probably actually aren't seeing patients <laughs> with it. Um, there's a lot we don't know about COVID. So remember the European and the, and the Chinese uh, experiences focused in the sickest of the sick. The people that ended up in the hospital, the people that ended up in the ICU, there was no focus and there hasn't been to date on you know, the community, the people that are being infected in the community. And the reason that is, is you're, you're going to screen those individuals that present at the hospital and need to be admitted and focus in on what the tempo is for that disease. And, and so I can say that we have very good data of what happens with people that are sick enough to end up in the hospital from the China experience and also from what's going on in Europe is, you know, people um, become sicker later than you would with the flu. So classically with influenza, which is a different type of virus, the incubation period is very short. Uh, people get symptoms and, you know, usually after a week they're better. Um, there is a risk of secondary pneumonias with influenza. That's different from COVID where the incubation period is a little bit longer. They And they seem to decompensate or get very sick later in the course. And so someone can look well at day five or six and at day seven or eight, they can totally tank and end up in the ICU. So we do know that from COVID for the community people that are getting flu-like symptoms where they have a cough and have a fever, really no one is following that population because those patients are, are doing fairly well. And the focus has been, at least in the United States, on people that are sick enough to go into the hospital. We've had such limited screening. You really want to limit your screening to individuals that are sick enough to go into the hospital because you don't want individuals in the hospital that have COVID that you don't know about. So there's not been a lot of community screening by public health and definitely not by hospitals because of the limitations of the tests that we have available. Up until last Friday, um, we were sending tests to the CDC. So right now we have two commercial labs in California that, that are able to run the tests still with about 48 hours of turnaround time. Uh, that's better than what we were seeing before. When we were sending the test to the CDC, it was typically five to seven days before we got a test result. So you can imagine being that patient and having to wait that long for your test results was very disconcerting. We also know from, from the people that end up in the ICU, it's not just the lung complications of COVID where it, it looks very similar to other viral pneumonias in the sense that you get a very typical pattern on chest x-rays and CAT scans, but it looks like there's also cardiac complications. And so it's no surprise that individuals that are older or even younger who have cardiac disease look like they're getting a higher frequency of cardiac complications if they end up in the hospital. 
So with the screenings, what is what is the process for a screening? Is it a blood test? That, that's a great question. At the beginning of the outbreak, the pandemic, the beginning of the pandemic, we were screening every different site, blood, nose, throat, urine, stool. And so we know we can recover it from the blood. We can recover it from the nose, the back of the nose. We can recover it from what you cough up. So doing throat swabs also, but also if people are coughing and producing sputum, we can recover it from that. We, we don't recover it from urine and uh, we can recover it from stool. Um, because of testing limitations, most facilities have gone to either just doing what we call nasopharyngeal swabs, where you... Hollywood Squares. Are you, are you there? Sorry, <laughs> I'm getting calls coming in. Where where you you stick a swab all the way in the back of the nose. So I'm showing my nose. So, swab so comfortable. The they go all the way in the back or uh, a throat swab. So we've switched to just doing nasopharyngeal swabs. Um, and we are, I mentioned some of the supply chain issues uh, nationally. There's also an impending shortage of the swabs uh, that are used to do this test. So we're all looking for creative ways um, that we can manage this outbreak, uh, just like we, we would in, 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 in different epidemics. This is something we see in epidemics and pandemics that we develop shortages um, in a, what we call our supply chain. And that could be ventilators, it could be lab materials that you can use to, to run the test. Um, and also remember some of the, the um, devices that we may use may be made in China. And so we may have supply chain issues because the countries are impacted by the pandemic and, and can't produce the uh, goods that we need. Mm. So, you know, um, screening early, social distancing is really important. Right. I will tell people that if you go to your clinic and ask for screening, you will not get screened. So how do you get screened? You do a phone call first, correct? So you do a phone call first. If you have mild symptoms, you should stay at home. If you are very ill, and you live in a state that does not have drive-by screening and some states are setting up drive-by screening, you need to call your local facility to find out what their process is, right? Remember I said everyone's developing their own plan and their process may be that they have a triage screening tent sent outside their hospital and then you will be assessed whether you meet criteria at this time today for screening. As soon as we get expanded screening in the United States, then there's going to be more individual screening. But right now, screening is really limited to people who meet that facility's criteria based on their inventory. And I would ask everyone to really understand that's based on the supplies that are available in their area. So you may have one area in, in the United States that has a lot more supplies than another area because there's no national redistribution of supplies. There may be local redistribution of supplies within a system, but not nationally. And so in some states that have, you know, very low population like Wyoming, they potentially may have more supplies than states that have been heavily impacted like Washington and California. That's so interesting. And I, I think that's interesting drive by states. Well, I love the, I love the idea of drive by. Fantastic idea. Yes, yes. There's no clinics.
you just set it up and go. Is that is that something that they're really looking at? Yes, yes, absolutely. In fact, I believe New York is looking at implementing that if they haven't already uh, in the area where they're having a lot of cases. And the benefit is you stay in your car, there's minimal exposure, the healthcare workers in protective equipment, they do the swab, give you some information, get your contact. And obviously if you're sick enough to be admitted, you'll be admitted. And most facilities are using you know, different criteria to screen, uh, you know, does it seem like you might have a pneumonia or you don't have enough oxygen in your blood? Those individuals, obviously, we would be concerned about and admit. So my next question is, I, I think communication is like the biggest one. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, call centers and people that own businesses. Because I, I actually have one of our sponsors, um, SureCall, owns a call center and they own call centers in Canada and the U.S. And I thought, oh, wow, I just, you know, are there, is there a need for call centers to say, hi, I can help support um, to engage because it sounds like once there is the testing, then there's also the follow-up, which is really important. And that's a piece that's not being done. So is that something that we should be, you know, it's like, everybody's like, how can we help and support, you know? And there's so many great businesses um, that have the tools and resources. So I guess I'm just curious, um, how that all pulls together if that's a possibility of engaging some of these businesses. I, I think that's a fantastic idea. Right now, most facilities have a process to follow up on their outpatient screening if there's a positive, but there's such a tremendous demand from the community for communication, education, someone just to talk to, right? Because a lot of facilities are, are basically um, capping their clinic visits unless someone is sick. There's going to be restrictions on visitation. There will be cutbacks on elective procedures. They just want to engage in someone and get information. And I think if you have resources, I'm saying this to your audience, Monica, because it's such a great idea, I would contact your local public health center or your local hospital and say, I'm here. What can we do to help? I have these resources because a lot of facilities and definitely public health centers, they're incredibly restricted on resources. I'm here to help. This is what I have. What can we do? Even if it's just messaging about social distancing or messaging about, you know, who needs to stay at home, who needs to go to the emergency room. People want to talk to someone. And so they turn on the TV and they're hearing one message. And I would also say to the media, be part of the solution and not part of the problem, that there's a tremendous message through the media um, in terms of telling people what they can do right now. And you've seen, I'm sure, the hashtag stay at home by um, many celebrities, which I think is fantastic. I think social media has been really underutilized in this um, of what people can do. In, in my state, in my area, there's a tremendous run on toilet paper and I'm not quite sure why that is. Um, this is not something that you're gonna get dysentery from, so, but we, if you go into any local stores, there's no toilet paper supplies left. 
I, I was in the store the other day. I had to just pop out for something. I'm not hoarding toilet paper, but I was looking for coffee. And I was like, you would I was shocked that the shelves were not bare of coffee because I'd be missing coffee before toilet paper. Yeah, I think there's alternatives to toilet paper, but not to coffee if you're, <laughs> if you're stuck at home, definitely. I need my coffee yes. <laughs> just to lighten it up a little bit. So, okay, so if we're going to recap, it's just so amazing. Like, thank you so much. I know that, you know, you're knee deep in, in everything right now and you're hands on, you're managing the outbreak, you're leading the teams of healthcare professionals and, and setting the tone for the U.S., essentially and you're taking the time out to talk to me and I'm going to make sure that we actually share this information and ask people to share the information so if we can just summarize the top things that you want everybody to do maybe the top five really important things the top three whatever that is we've talked about a lot of things what is the number one priority the one priority is the safest way to protect yourself is number one, social distancing. If you can telecommute, telecommute. Avoid large gatherings. So this is not the time to go to that bon voyage party, which you've been waiting for for three months. You want to avoid that. People I know are buying up masks and wearing masks around the community. There's really, at this point, the mask should be reserved for individuals in the community that have a cough. So I have a, I'll carry a mask with me, and if I'm in a, a, a situation where someone's calling, uh, you know, coughing, I can hand the mask to them. I'm not putting the mask on myself. I don't walk throughout the hospital with a mask on. If you are sick, stay at home. If you've recently traveled to a high-risk area, stay at home. A lot of the transmission that we saw in Los Angeles were from travelers from Italy that did not stay at home really really important because we're all we all have a public health responsibility right we all want to go out but we also have a public health responsibility the other important thing and it's probably one of the best things to come out of this outbreak is hand washing hand washing is probably one of the most important things to prevent transmission both in hospitals but also just out in the community um, and what's the good news is it looks like people are listening to that message because there's no alcohol, hand sanitizers, and soap and water is fine, so you're fine with that. Um, but almost all the stores and on Amazon are, are uh, sold out of hand sanitizer. So it means that people really are listening. I would also encourage people not to hoard. Um, so if you're hoarding hand sanitizers, which has happened where people have bought up all the supplies, um, that's not a, 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 a that's not being a good good member of your community really um, because that decreases access uh, of those supplies to people that are really at risk and um, it's really unfortunate when you see that type of behavior if you're not sick try to stay away from the hospitals um, the hospitals are really trying to deal with capacity issues and this is not the time to go in um, because you hurt your toe or you have very, very mild symptoms. If you have a high fever, if you have fevers, if you're short of breath, which is a symptom of having pneumonia and that's new for you, or is a, a significant change, then you do need to be evaluated, but call first. So call your local hospital first, find out what their process is. The other thing I always say when, when I, you know, when I worked on the um, Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone, 
we set up a way of shaking hands. I've never been a fan of shaking hands. Never understood that. So we would do the oh, elbow bump. Oh, 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 yay. The elbow bump. Um, you can do an air fist bump if you want, but I like the elbow bump because it, it, it you know, there, there's Fun. no potential of, of exposure. Um, and I, I think what most people don't understand because this came up earlier this morning, is they think, well, I'm just going to see my three friends that I'm really close with, and it's, it's not going to be a big deal. But it's kind of like HIV and sex. You know, you don't know who they've been around, and you don't know the people they were around where they traveled. And at least in the United States, we already have community transmission. So, you know, a lot of our communication and social communication may have to unfortunately right now I'll be a little bit more remote well that's great advice I really and reach out to your community to see if you have a product or service that can help support someone um, I know that I've actually started to do a biz chat every single Wednesday just so that people um, leaders that are working from home they can connect online and we're just gonna have a chat online going how can we help them support great idea. That's a fantastic idea. Right? I mean, just those small little things. I know that I was on LinkedIn last night till way too late. Um, and, you know, people were on. They're like, how can I serve? How can I help? And offering tips. And because people are, you know, like, the businesses are affected. So um, I guess help and serve however you possibly can look after yourself first is really important so that you can look after others yes yeah which is very cool so i am super excited i'm going to share all of these tips i'm can we do a fifth can we do like an elbow bump ready <laughs> yes that's for you because i have been doing elbow bumps for the past couple weeks and i'm a hugger um but i like the elbow bumps and Anyways, I, I, I just think that's a lot of fun. It lightens the mood and you still want to acknowledge somebody. So great advice. Um, now, this is the Woman of Inspiration podcast. We've talked a lot about Convit um, and about what we can do to help and support. But I think you're a woman of inspiration, Suzanne. Thank How you. Did, you wake, did you wake up one day and decide that I'm going to be a, a, a physician in the medical industry and um, I'm going to specialize in infectious diseases. That is, I, I don't see that at the top of the um, ladder for most um, sought after kind of career choice. Um, how did you start? And maybe you could share a little bit about, you know, how you began your journey, what inspired you? Well, you know, when I speak to young people, I always start out with saying, I'm a dropout so because I think it's very important to realize that we all can do whatever we want um, and our path may change and you know one door closes and another door opens I, you know those sound like trite things but it, I've been incredibly fortunate my entire life and I, I speak all over the world and I've even though I'm not a pediatric physician, I, I take care of a lot of kids internationally and I speak to a lot of children internationally, uh, particularly those in orphanages, because I grew up in an orphanage. And I believe that the lessons I learned um, growing up in the largest orphanage in the United States at the time 
are lessons that really made me who I am. I, I don't believe in focusing in on, oh my God, that was such a horrible thing, you know, that uh, how I grew up. I think it inculcated a lot of my values um, because it was a Catholic orphanage um, and values of dedication and community service and how to overcome um, some of the things that I had to overcome when I was younger. One of the things I learned from both growing up in the orphanage and then re being reunited with my uh, family, who had significant mental disease and uh, uh, polysubstance abuse issues, and was a very violent household, was that ed education was key. And so I pretty much at the age of five realized if I was gonna get out of the orphanage and s succeed compared to the other kids in that orphanage, um, um, I had to be the best student, the smartest student uh, possible. And at a very early age, I decided for whatever reason that I was going to be a veterinarian, but I was going to do wildlife international work. And so that's what I ended up doing at the time that school was at, at five. So at five, it was the best student, um, I would say seven or eight, seven or eight. And I told myself, I'm going to work in Africa. I'm going to be a veterinarian slash adventurer <laughs> and and um and when i was young it was a male-dominated profession there was only 19 vet schools it was impossible for a young woman to get into vet school and i i did get in and i um also uh had already been to africa and done wildlife work so I set that intention that that's what I was going to do and despite the fact of being incredibly poor and not having a lot of resources, you know, it kind of manifested uh, for myself uh, like an amazing, amazing experience in East Africa and then getting, in, getting into vet school. So one of the things I learned and I tell my kids is be very mindful that when you set very early goals that those goals may change and it's okay to change. So I never really re-examined that goal because I'm a very linear A to B. And I was told for 10 years or yeah, 10 years, you can't do it. So the worst thing to say to me is you can't do something because I'm gonna prove that I can. So I got into vet school and I left after my first semester because I it was not the right fit. I'm a very much a animal rights uh, individual and it, it 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 didn't click with me and and I took a leave of absence I'm still on leave of absence from vet school and then I taught for a year thinking what I can do and I'm, this is going to sound very disappointing to your audience that th thinks that I had a calling um, is it was very important to me because I grew up in such a financially insecure erratic uh, unstable um, household that it was very important to me that I had a profession where I knew I could always support myself. So I thought, well, I'll just become a doctor and then I'll do, you know, outbreaks of zoonotic diseases, which are diseases from animals. And I'm not gonna see patients because I'm really not that interested in that. I'll be a scientist. And so I, but I'm gonna go back to Africa. So this is where my story gets a little complicated because I, I went to medical school and I applied for a dual degree program um, because I thought, well, I'm not so interested in being a doctor. So I'll be a doctor, but I'm gonna get another degree at the same time. 
And I'm also going to study Swahili because I wanted to work in, in Africa. So I ended up getting a fellowship that paid for my medical school while I learned Swahili. And I wrote a grant and I ended up living in Dar es Salaam for about a year during my medical school. So it was actually out of the country for 25%. And I'm pretty sure no one at my medical school knew that. Um, so I was very fortunate that I was in Tanzania at the beginning. And this, so this was in the 80s at the beginning of the AIDS, beginning of the AIDS pandemic. So I feel like I'm began my career with the first pandemic and I'm gonna end my career with the last pandemic, which is COVID. What was interesting, and this is why I always tell young people, keep your mind open, because you don't know what you don't know, is I saw my first patient when I was a second year medical student. And I still remember that patient to this day. He was a 32 year old young man who had just gotten married. He was a ranger, ranger in the woods. So we really connected because I'm a big outdoor enthusiast. And he had a young baby, beautiful wife. And he had been having a lot of belly pain. And he had had the endoscopy where they stick the scope down there, down into the stomach. And I was with um, the doctor when they did the procedure. And the senior doctor was, to me, not to the patient, was saying, you know, he's kind of a whiner. He's really whiny. This is not a big deal. And I thought, I don't think that's the case. And I went home and looked up his findings that he had on his his exam um, because his pain was out of proportion and i went back into the doctor and i the, the senior doctor and i was just a little medical student and i said i think he may have ce syndrome which is zollinger ellison syndrome which is where you produce too much of a hormone it's like a tumor and so i went ahead and ordered the test without his permission for it and let me just turn this on it turns out that's what he had. Amazing. Uh, and he died two weeks later, and I was with him when he died. And I had no idea that I would get so connected to patients and that, and, and how that was just as important, if not more important, than the intellectual cerebral component of making the diagnosis. It was much more important to that family that I was there, that I held his hand when he was dying, that I was there for his wife, uh, that I held their baby, uh, than making the right diagnosis. And to this day, and now this is what, 30 years later? One of the things that I love about medicine is the incredible privilege it is of being a part of a patient's life and walking along that path of their journey, um, or whatever their journey is, whether it's HIV, I run an HIV women's clinic in Los Angeles, or whether it's, you know, uh, they have tuberculosis or they have COVID, that being part of their life is such a privilege to doctors and nurses, I think. And it's one of the, my favorite things uh, about the job. But I never realized I would have liked that. Never realized that I might have an ability and ability to really connect with my patients and um, really love doing that. I've been to my patients' homes. Uh, I have had their families. I always tell them we're growing old together. I was pregnant with my kids. When they were pregnant, their kids have visited me, of my HIV moms in the clinic. Um, some of them have met my kids 
Uh, so it's it's really been a fantastic, amazing journey, and that's just one component. That's my main job. My other job is is really international outbreak management, which is a little bit of my passion um, because I like the adventure of it and I like the intellectual challenge, um, and I'm good at it. And you've got this super great connection with people. I know that I, when I was stalking you on Facebook and looking through your feeds, I found a couple things. One is a great quote that I will share. Um, and the other one was a picture of, that you posted and, well, there's two. There's one of two little boys. Do you remember that picture of the yes. two boys and the streets were, you know, I don't know, where was this? It was a small town in, on the Eastern border of Sierra Leone. Right, and these two little boys were walking hand in hand, and it just gave me goosebumps because there's, so you describe what that picture meant or why you took it, but, but for me, that was really kind of very significant of the time that we're in right now. Yes. Um, so, you know, I worked on, the, uh, was an advisor to the WHO during the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone and, and one of the devastating complications that we're, we're, we're seeing now in our country but certainly in Sierra Leone um, was the destruction of the social infrastructure. So Africans are incredibly touchy, you know, hugging, holding hands. I really love that about working internationally because that's not always the case in the United States. And, you know, the schools were closed, soccer, which is a really big deal for me, but also for um, West Africa and uh, obviously Europe. They had to stop playing soccer. The churches were closed. Um, a lot of the traditional healers um, died. The leaders in the community died from Ebola. And it, it destroyed the fabric, the social fabric. If you got Ebola and survived, you were ostracized. And it was very, very, very challenging for the communities that saw their loved ones die, but then also didn't have the support of people. And you alluded to that a little bit. How, how do people deal with the stress? And I went through that um, uh, during my multiple visits during Sir, to Sierra Leone. And I went through it. So we were talking about those two young boys and after going through really a horrendous year for Sierra Leone, I came back to help reopen. I came back to help reopen the hospitals, and I was tired. I just met with, you know, hospital staff trying to train them so that they didn't miss an Ebola case. And I came out. Um, I'll never forget this. I came out of this little, tiny little hospital in this little village. And I saw those little boys walking down, arm in arm, down this dusty street. And I just thought, you know, really, it's all about love and connection. And that's what it's all about, seeing those two kids. And it just made my, really, it made my, I said it in, in my post, it made my day, my week, my month. I always look back and then I reposted it because there's so much fear and in some individuals despair of what's gonna happen. And I think if we remember the basics, you know, that we're all here for each other, that we're all gonna work as a community. I Last night, I've been working so much that I really have been forgetting to eat, which I always tell everyone, don't miss sleep, don't miss eating, but it's difficult. 
because I've been so busy and some of my neighbors who are also vegans, organic, same life style as me, just texted me and they said, we left a care package outside your gate. And it was just full of this amazingly delicious food. And it made me really feel like, oh, I need to also take care and I can accept things from the community. And it was fantastic. Very cool. And I, I know, cause that was a question that I had for you was, have you slept yet? And you're like, you know, like there's so much going on and, and this is almost like, this is your zone. You're in your zone doing what you love to do, right? Mm -hmm. Helping serve people. So anyways, I, I, I asked you that. So do you have people taking care of you? And then all of a sudden I saw a post that you had like this little care package. So yeah. just kind yeah. of building up. Um, so, wow, what an incredible story. I you are truly inspiring and i just you know i only we met um actually i was at your birthday party yes <laughs> and you make a mean uh that cake that you made yes uh it was vegan, vegan cake yeah it was amazing and i came to your birthday party that was the first time that i met you um with our good friend conrad Cantor, who's another amazing extraordinary soul and I just felt this instant connection. Like I knew that you would, you and I had a bigger talk to have. And I still think that I can see a bunch of bigger talks that need to happen. Um, I know that uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg from what folks have had the opportunity to listen. Um, so let's keep some for later because the story is going to continue. I know that I asked you about a book. I know that you're working on a book right now. So, um, you know, I look forward to, to seeing that journey unfold because your story is certainly inspiring me, um, the young women, um, girls that want to get into STEM that are five that are people that may not have situations that are also rose colored glasses. And, you know, I just have to say that, you know, through my adversity, I'm doing what I'm doing because of my adversity. I don't think I'd be going down this road if, if I did have a great path, you know, I made this path because of my adversity and it's a gift. So I think stories like yours, there's a, such beauty in it because I believe that we're all on this path and purpose for a reason. We get these wild, crazy ideas and this is where I'm gonna share your favorite quote if you don't mind. Yeah, please do. Now this also when I was stalking you on Facebook um, and I quickly put it together on a, on a post and sent it to you. Let me find it. Okay. Okay. And you said the font wasn't big enough and it wasn't because I wanted to put everything on it. Okay. It said, I'm with the dirty mouth girls, the ones with the bare feet, the brilliant minds, the messy hair, wild hearts and feisty spirits. The ones who aren't afraid to speak up and who live for doing what they've been told is impossible. And that was a quote by Brooke Hampton. And I love that quote. I just, it resonates so deeply with, you know, women that I, like yourself, like I, I, I could see that quote being like on your wall somewhere <laughs> or somewhere in your book. Actually, I see that as being maybe inside the cover somewhere because that just embodies you and, um, you know, you're the little girl inside of you. That's now a woman that's done all these amazing things in the world, but it came with a vision, relentless pursuit of 
and belief in yourself, which is so in, important for us all to know that we all have that inside of us, right? Yeah. Um, you have some really unique friends in your house. Where's the pig in the blanket? Do you have it? Well, my, my pig, because we've been in the middle of a rainstorm, yeah. is on in our barn. Um, and so she's actually in the barn to keep, uh, the, the sun has come out, but we've, it's been raining here in Los Angeles for three days. And then, yes, we have a bunny, we have three dogs, and that's pared down. At, I think at our max, we have maybe 28 animals on the property. Amazing. Yeah. And yeah. your kids, how old are your kids now? So my son is 22, my daughter is 20, my daughter is at UCSD, which was shut down, so everything is remote learning right now. She's a brilliant economics major. Um, I mean, I always say she's mini me on Red Bull. <laughs> <laughs> and then my my son uh, is uh, you know an amazing young man. He just finished his last season um, being the goalkeeper, the starting goalkeeper for San Diego State, uh, which is a D1 Pac-12 school, and um, he's looking at his path in life now too. Amazing. It looks like you've raised some really amazing kids. You've yeah. done it on your own for a number of years. Yes. Um, I think I'm a single mom. Yes. I, I, I had to share that because I mean, for all the single moms out there, um, you know, I left when my son was seven months old and it's not an easy path. And when you look at the career that you've done and the yes. path that you've taken, even more extraordinary um, that you've done it with, with, you know, just as being a single parent. Well, they do have a great dad, so I've been very lucky. And in fact, their dad, when I made a decision to go to Sierra Leone at the beginning of, of their uh, of the epidemic, well before really anyone else was there, um, he was the first person I called and I said, look, are you going to be okay with this? Because they were young, they were in high school. And um, I need you to be okay with this because I'm going to be gone. And he's a great guy because his first response to me was, I can't think of a better person oh. to go. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I needed to hear. Uh, that, that I needed to know that the home front was gonna be okay while I was out of the country. And he was fantastic and, and has supported all of my traveling and is probably my biggest supporter for the work that I do, and including he called me last night really about what was going on with COVID locally and what he could do to help. I love that because that's one of the things that I find um, when I talk to women is, what does your support system look like? And it's integral to have a network, supporters mm -hmm. around you, and there's lots of good men that are willing to jump in and to say, how can we help support you? How can I help lift you up, fix your crown? Whatever you need, I'm here for you. So um, I'd love to see that that's such a big piece of, of your success is your support system. Yes. So I have a couple more questions um, and then I think you need to go, I need to let you go and save the world. <laughs> but I look, I, I, I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. I know like we talked about, um, you could be on 
the news, the nightly news, giving updates and reports, but you're actually knee deep in dealing with the patients one-on-one. -on -one. So thank you for taking this time to um, educate our audience, share a little bit about your story and inspire us. I look forward to the journey ahead and having you come speak live when we can actually have those big gatherings again. I, I believe that's in the future. Um, what, what words of advice, um, you know, for those women, young and old that are watching, um, what words of advice would you give them when, you know, uh, you know, just, you know, to follow their dreams and you're living your passion? Um, what words of advice would you give them? You know, I, I, I gave my, my son something. I would really like to read it if possible. Yes, please. I'm 21. And, and in fact, I will display it. If, okay. If okay. Yes. Um, this is actually one of his graduation presents. Okay, I am lost. I lost you kind of voice wise. We've got the Hollywood squares, but I can't hear you anymore. Okay. There we go. Okay, great. Hold on just a minute. I thank you for your patience on this. That's okay. We're getting, you know, what this reminds me of is the Vogue tour where they knock on the door and they're like, okay, so we have a few questions for you today. And the celebrity starts answering the questions as they go through the tour of their home. And um, so that's what it reminds me of right now because you're taking us on a tour of, of your house there with that beautiful ceiling. So I'm gonna flip, can I flip this? Uh, I hope so. If not, I'll turn it around so you see it and then I'll Perfect. read it out loud. And this okay. is Perfect. both my kids. Perfect, so yeah, flip it around and then you can read it to us. Can you see what I'm showing you? Um, almost, a little bit more to the left. Just a little bit more, yeah, a little bit more, a little bit more. Perfect, perfect. We can make the best or the worst of it. I hope you make the best of it. I hope you see things that startle you. I hope you feel things you've never felt before. I hope you meet people with a different point of view. I hope you live a life you're proud of. If you find that you're not, I hope you have the strength to start all over again. And that's one of my favorite quotes by Fitzgerald. That is extraordinary. I think that's such wisdom. And if you just have the courage to start all over again. And I think we all have that courage. You know, I, all of us have a hero inside of us. All of us have a demon. All of us have the person that wants to fall apart. You know, it's all there. It's what we choose to encourage. If we encourage the fearful part of us, that's what's going to dominate. If we believe that we're the heroes, then that's what you're going to show the world. I always tell my kids, because I never panic. I know that sounds it's very strange. I just don't. And I, I think I always tell my daughter, you know, the 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 the, the Calvary's not coming. Be your own hero. And I have to say, when I was listening to some of your recent podcasts, you are so calm 
And I think that if I chose to be on a team anywhere, I'd choose to have you on your <laughs> on the team because you have that calmness about you that you're like, we got this. Yeah. Let's just work through it together. And there's such reassurance. So um, thank you so much for, for sharing this time. It was an absolute pleasure. I know that we had played tag with schedules because you're such a busy woman right now trying to, um, you know, be, you're right there in the ball of it. So in the eye of the storm right now. So I, I want to send all my love um, and all my energy to you and your team and to all the healthcare professionals out there on the front lines. Um, we really appreciate your support and you have an army behind you. Um, just know that the energy is there and thank you so much. I look forward to continuing the journey with you, Suzanne. You're a woman of inspiration and I can't wait for this to be aired. So I'll leap you through. I'll also, if you can send me that quote, I'd love to include it as well. And then I'm going to include some ways that people can get a hold of you. Now, I know that you've been directing people away from, well, from Facebook because they'd have to be friends with you. So they couldn't yeah. see that anyways. Yeah. Um, but where would you like people to go to find out more updates? The at Dr. Suzanne Donovan on Instagram. Perfect. Okay. Well, I separated off all my personal stuff. So I'm not social media savvy, but so many people were trying to get on my, my friend, um, uh, social media. I just decided to start that so that I could give just the facts. There's no inflammatory details on that. It's really just the data that's out there. And then people, I do answer people's questions. Fantastic. So I can help and support any way I can. I'm going to ask people if they have questions. Maybe I'll shoot you a line. You can answer yep. them. You can get it out there. Um, let's just do what we can to help and support. And thank you so much again. Um, I look forward to coming and visiting you yes. and um, giving you one of these in person or maybe one of the hugs in person. <laughs> and um, fantastic. So I hope you have an amazing having day. having me on the show. Pardon me? I said, thank you for having me on the show. You are so welcome. Um, it's amazing. I feel so blessed to have this opportunity to share with you. Have a great day, Suzanne, and uh, go save some lives. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. You jumped off already. No, I didn't. I'm still here. Can you hear me? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Just We'll yeah. just close off yeah. real quick. You don't have to see me. No. Oh, come on. Uh, no, I'm not. Yeah, I'm off my phone, but oh, I, I saw the okay, computer okay. going. So um, how did that go? Is that good? Amazing. Okay. It was perfect. I think that for people that want the COVID info right away, um, they got it. Boom. I think what I'll do is I'll recap all those high points. And I'll put, you know, the top things that we can do right now. Most importantly, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So I'll have to go through and make sure that I get the whole list from you. I'll go through and find that in the in the form here so I can make a little thing. And then I'll just start sharing. Share it. Like social distance. Social distance. Do yourself a favor. Let's let's beat this together, right? So But I love your idea of, of engaging with businesses. I think the call centers, I mean, there's so much they could be doing to help facilities and public health departments. And I don't think that they know, and I know it's probably, you know, a, a business thing. So I'm gonna, one of my advisors, he is so awesome. 
Um, I'm, I feel so blessed to have him as an advisor and he and his wife own a call center. So they have Denver, um, Calgary, somewhere else in the US. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick up the phone and actually call him and see, and I might just kind of, you know, I think there's like a bigger way that he can help, of course, um, and not only his call center, but just to see if there's other ways that people can help. That's great. Yeah. But thanks, Suzanne. I would great. love, um, we're gonna do this again, and I look forward to the next time that we can talk. Um, have you seen Conroy since she's been home? Yes, she was over Friday night, and um, I was gonna see her at a gathering, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not gonna be going to that. <laughs> Social.